When I don't know what else to do, I go for walks. I think there's a danger if you're the kind of person who enjoys writing that you spend a bit too much time in your own head. Natural selection. My favourite bird is a goldfinch dropping crumbs from the bird feeder to the ground, where the fat pigeon marches collecting them. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my favourite bird is a magpie taking off inches from a puppy's paws. Maybe my favourite bird is a puppy. Maybe I'm my favourite bird when I'm tossing crumbs to the flightless or hoarding or making an escape, claws outstretched. Hello and welcome wherever you are in the world to our very first episode of Stereoplate. I'm Martin and we're really pleased to have you with us. And I'm Jacqueline. Okay, Martin. I want you to imagine something. Okay. Yeah? Okay. I want you to imagine a network of writers and artists and scientists and philosophers and scholars and theologians. Okay. Okay. Yeah, cool. And this network is communicating with one another across Europe and America. In fact, the whole of the Americas. Yeah? And they're doing this during the 17th through to the 19th centuries. Okay, but I don't think my imagination can go that far back. I don't know. Okay. All right, let me, let me try and help. Um, so what we're looking at is the 1600s through to the 1800s. Okay. The people in this uh, network are part of something called the Republic of Letters. Okay, that's interesting. It is. I think it's interesting. Right? And they're coming out of the Enlightenment. Right. It's also known as the Age of Reason. So, so uh, maybe just to give you the bare bones of what that means, it means belief in reason, belief in science, um, knowledge based on evidence, questioning absolute monarchy, questioning the Catholic Church... Wanting to separate state and church. This is, you know, this is a time of political and social upheaval. It's a time of revolution, the yep. American Revolution. So sounding familiar. Sounding familiar, absolutely. <laughs> but let's, let's get back to the Republic of Letters. Okay, this is a group of men, almost entirely men. And they are sharing, le- uh, sharing their ideas, they're sharing philosophies, they're sharing political discourse and social discourse, and they're sharing it with one another, as I said, across these continents through handwritten letters. Oh, wow. That's, that's something. I can't even ha- handwrite a letter these days. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Can you imagine... It's, I don't know, 1684, and you're sitting down and you are writing this letter. And this is your language. You're writing this letter in your own language, and whoever's receiving it might not necessarily speak your language. They might do. They might not necessarily read it, but they're finding some way of getting that translated, and they are um, valuing the work, valuing the the things that you're saying to them. Yeah. Can I just interrupt and say, but um, are we talking bionic pigeons? We're not talking bionic pigeon. <laughs> well, somehow, you know, someone in France is not, you know, how are they getting a letter to someone in, you know, America? Brazil or, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, maybe not bionic pigeons, maybe ships. Maybe ah, pigeons, I don't know. But still a slow process, though. A really, really slow process. It's not like sending an email or yeah. anything like this. What is fascinating, though, 
is that this is a slow process. If you're committing something to a letter, to communicate something to someone halfway around the world, then obviously you're going you're gonna to take time over that letter. Yeah. And, and that thought. So that in itself is worthy of being received. Which doesn't mean that if you send a really nice email, that's not worthy to be received. No, but we do we do consume these like candy, don't we? You know, it's... I suppose it depends on the email. I mean, if you're sending people really valuable information, which is similar, I don't know, I suppose now you're sending an email that's talking about how COVID-19 affects the blood or mm. how COVID-19 affects the brain. You're going to read that. You're going to want to know. It might be slightly different. Maybe when we think about letters, we think about them in slightly more precious terms. Mm-hmm. The Republic of Letters is where we get this phrase, men of letters. Mm-hmm. So when we're thinking about scientists and philosophers, we're thinking about, you know, big brains, mm. um, and we use this phrase, men of letters, it's, it's pointing to this point in history. Mm. So this is all really interesting, but why are you telling us this at the start of this podcast but it's as good a place as any to tell you this information okay so so one of the things that that we spoke about with stereoplate was that we would ask a question for every episode and we'd try and if not answer it we'd try and at least talk about this question okay the question that we wanted to look at for this episode is how do you launch a literary magazine in a global pandemic. And for this episode, we are going to be celebrating Brittle Star magazine. Yep. Okay. I am going to tell you about Brittle Star magazine, even though you know about Brittle Star magazine. Good, good. I, I need a refresher. You... <laughs> You've not been doing it for long enough. No, not quite. No. So Brittle Star is a literary magazine, um, and it's 20 years old this year. Ooh. And as you know, we're the editors of it. And we wanted to do a big celebration of it and have a big launch. And we usually have our launches at the Barbican. Right now we're coming out of lockdown, but when Brittle Star was ready for launching, which was the end of June, um, we were still in lockdown. So one of the things that we needed to do was find some way of celebrating this magazine, celebrating these 20 years, and actually celebrating this amazing work. And Stereoplate is a project that we were really interested in developing anyway. And uh, we thought this would be a really lovely springboard. Yeah, it was a good opportunity to to try it out. Really kind of long and circuitous way to get back to the Republic of Letters. And what the hell I'm talking about when I'm telling you about the Republic of Letters. Okay is um, because we're talking about how you launch a literary magazine in in difficult situations, I thought I'd tell you about the very first literary magazine. Okay, that sounds interesting. Yeah? Yeah. (laughs) It's taken me a while to get round. (laughs) It's been a long and enjoyable journey. In 1684, the doors opened on Nouvelle de République des Lettres. The news... From the Republic of Letters. So this is pretty much the first literary magazine. And I am using literary magazine in the broadest sense of the term in that it was a periodical. This is a substantial book. Um, you know, like Brittle Star. Where, you know, when we publish a Brittle Star that's like 130 pages or something like that and we think that's a good, fat magazine. Yeah. This is 320 pages roughly 
per issue, mm. sometimes more. Yeah. It's hardback. It's bound. It's, it's, I think it might even have been leather bound. Or, it's certainly cloth bound. I mean, it just looks amazing. It has marbled end papers. Right. This is a magazine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never seen a copy of it, but I've seen copies of it on Google Books. So you, yeah. you, the University of Michigan have, have put up mm. this um, this digitised version of a number of them. You're right, OK. Yeah, I mean, they are mm. amazing. And, of course, they're all in French. It's a, it's a book review journal. Cool. Are you with me so yeah, far? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Keep so it's going. a beautiful book, 300 and odd pages, and it's containing reviews on... Um, Books that are coming out of the Republic of Letters, certainly coming out of the Enlightenment. Um, an example that I found was, and this is going to be awful, my pronunciation, I, I do apologise. So it's Oraculus Veterum Ethnicorum Dissertationis. <laughs> okay. I know. Mm, I can recognise a few of those words. But <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Unlike Victoria Wood, I don't have O-level Latin. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this is a book. It's written by um, Anton van Dell. Um, it, it's, it was written in 1683. It is a critique on oracles, on superstition, on the supernatural and on demons. Oh, right. It, it's, yeah. yeah. So this is the sort of thing that it's looking at. Yeah. yeah. Something that is, um, you know, based in reason. So let me tell you a little bit more. It started in 1684. Yeah. And it ended in 1780. So the editors, um, four men, uh, again, forgive my pronunciation, so Pierre Bell, Daniel Delaroque, Jean Leclerc, and Jacques Bernard. These are all basically refugees. They're fleeing religious persecution. And they are producing this magazine out of Holland because by looking at this material by doing these kind of reviews, by also distributing um, information about these books, this is dangerous territory. In France, this could end, you could end up in prison. Yeah. So the publisher, the original publisher, it had a couple of publishers, but the original publisher, Henri Desbourg, was also living in Amsterdam. He was also... Um, exiled to Amsterdam. He'd already served a prison sentence yeah. uh, for publishing material that was um, seen to be challenging monarchy and state. Yeah. 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 Okay. 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 Um, Pierre Bell, who was the first editor, was also persecuted. Right. And also exiled to Holland. There's something in Holland at this point that is um, more tolerant yeah. than other countries. Yes, yeah. But anyway, so that's, that's the first... That's what's considered as the first literary magazine. It's a book review. Yeah. It's coming out of the Age of Enlightenment and um, it's written in French but produced in Amsterdam okay. under really difficult circumstances. <laughs> When we're not doing a podcast or earning a living, Jacqueline and I edit a magazine called Brittle Star, which has been going for 20 years. The latest issue is issue 46 and came out last month in June. 
and you'll hear readings from some of the contributors to that issue. Other magazines found different ways to launch their magazine during lockdown. Some chose YouTube or Facebook and some Zoom. In mid-April, at the beginning of lockdown, Magma Poetry Magazine in the UK launched one of their issues. They launched it on Zoom. The launch was hacked. So we spoke with Leo Boykes, who hosted the event, and he had some really interesting things to say. So the first thing we asked is why they decided to do an online launch. But it wasn't, it wasn't an easy decision because we, we were, because we got this really amazing places, Tate and one in, Mar- in Margate and various other um, launches. We thought, let's wait a little bit and see, you know, uh, what happens. Um, otherwise, once you launch it online, that's, that's the launch, which is a very important um, time, you know, to kind of celebrate, but also to promote it. We weren't sure, uh, uh, you know, at first, because we thought we might kind of lose that kind of opportunity uh, somehow. But then we saw that other magazines were doing it and we thought, OK, we'll, we'll try. Why Zoom? Zoom, because we, we had, uh, I can't remember exactly how many poets uh, we had reading, but it was quite a long list. So, and we want them to be sort of together in the, in, on, on the screen. Back then, Zoom was the, the only one and the one that most people knew a little bit more. So we asked him to tell us a little bit about the spring issue. It's called Resistencia, Resistance, and it's a magazine dedicated to Latinx uh, poetry and poets, uh, poets from Latin America, poets uh, with Latin American background or heritage that live in the US, uh, Latinx poets here in the UK. So it was quite, uh, you know, quite an important issue because it was the first time that a UK magazine, you know, poetry magazine was, you know, dedicating it to the Latinx um, community and the Latinx themes. The Zoom launch allows us to have all, all of, most of them the poets. reading live from Trinidad, from New York, from Argentina, from Brazil, from all over the world. So it was actually very, very international. Uh, and that's something that you can't have, you know, if you have a physical launch. Um, that was really, really positive and, and, um, and really great, actually. We asked Leo if he enjoyed the Zoom launch. Well, to be honest, um, it was enjoyable, but we had a little bit of a, a problem, actually, at the start of the, uh, the event. As I was introducing the poets, uh, the event was hacked. A feature of Zoom is that during the meeting, anyone can scribble on the screen or post photos for anyone to see. These kind of anti-Semitic um, images, and also they were shouting horrible things to um, some of the poets. Uh, they use the N word. It was. He went on really to talk about how difficult it was, and how upsetting it was. But they did get rid of the hackers. Uh, so after a few minutes, they we managed to get them out. Uh, it wasn't that they just left. We, we had to kind of yeah, block them because I wasn't expecting it at all. Nobody told me that that was a possibility, that immediately the, that space that I felt was very safe and very sort of warm, it became an unsafe space. You know, I, I felt responsible somehow for the poets who were there. Yeah. Uh, we had poets uh, from all uh, walks of life, uh, poets from different backgrounds and heritage. And I apologised to them, um, to the poets and the audience. And, um, and then we carry on, and it, it actually was a beautiful evening after, afterwards. Um, it was actually quite an emotional launch. We really felt um, together somehow, and because it was the, you know, the, the, the beginning of the lockdown, we didn't know what was going to happen. 
We asked Leo if Magma would do online launches in the future, especially if we were allowed back in buildings again. Totally, yeah. We, we've done another event last weekend with uh, poets from the US, and, uh, and we had music and, and poetry, and it was ab absolutely fantastic. So we learned, we learned the, the lesson. We had a person who was in charge of um, letting people in, and that person was paid specifically to, to you know, be, you know, uh, in control of, of those aspects. Um, so I had, you know, we were all just enjoying the, the, the evening and reading and, and so cool. fantastic. I enjoyed that interview. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> it was nice to see Leo again. Yes, and it's been uh, two years? Two years. So we know Leo um, because he won second prize in the Brittle Star competition when Pascal Petit was the poetry judge. Yeah. Nice, because we weren't expecting it to be Leo. Um, when we asked Magma if we could talk to him about the launch, um, we were expecting to speak to Lisa, Lisa Kelly, but um, they, she put us in touch with Leo, and it's nice because it's a sort of nice connection. Hello, I'm Dice Laney, and I run Manor Farm Charitable Trust in Billsthorpe in Nottinghamshire, where we look after lots of elderly and disabled animals at our special charity, which offers lifelong sanctuary for livestock in need. If you'd like to find out more about us and the lovely creatures that we look after, including Dumpy the Sheep with a deformed jaw, Stevie and Carlos the Blind Ducks and Stumble the One-Legged Duck, then have a look at our website at manorfarmcharitabletrust.org or find us on Facebook. Thank you. At the top of this episode, you heard a really interesting poem called Natural Selection by a lovely young poet called Rebecca Shaw. Um, Rebecca works for the NHS. She's an administrator and the NHS is a national health service in the UK. And one of the things that we sort of forget or don't realise or don't even think about is that um, poets, poets aren't these strange rarefied creatures, these, you know, unusual, extraordinary animals. They are people and they work in jobs and they work in offices and factories and, and libraries. And they eat sandwiches. They do. <laughs> they do eat sandwiches. And they write these lovely lines um, like, maybe my favourite bird is a puppy. So what we have for you now is six writers, five poets and one short story writer. And we brought these ones together because we thought that they were sort of all looking out into the world. So you've got lots of sort of outdoorsy poems and themes yeah. and and sort of just generally looking out of the world um dealing with the world in its all of its wonderfulness and difficulties just really interesting i think that when we were putting this magazine together uh, this issue of this magazine together it was in lockdown um and we did we got a lot of lockdown a lot of lockdown poems and stories but also we had a lot of poems and stories that were looking sort of to the future that were looking out these poems and this story that we've brought together here have something of that feeling about it uh, but in the next episode um, we'll be bringing you lots of different poems and stories and they'll be looking at the world in a different way so that's something to look forward to but let's listen to these brilliant um, writers reading their work in their own voices we asked them to do this and to send in their recordings. So, you know, some of them went and 
recorded into wardrobes and some some of them stuck blankets over their heads um, so that the sound quality would be good enough. And all done on iPhones or... Computers. Computers. Yeah. So, you know, rough and ready, but... Um... Not rough and ready. Cheeky box. <laughs> Brilliantly done. <laughs> so maybe the odd mistake. There might not be. This next poem is worth listening to just for this very, very lovely, very gorgeous word, pufflings, which are baby puffins. So the poem is by an American poet who lives in the UK. Um, Her name is Heidi Beck, and the poem is called How to Visit with Puffins. Um, Heidi is a, a wildlife photographer. I think she's recently started taking wildlife photographs. Um, and you can see in this poem that very close attention to detail and observation. It's really, it's lovely. So, how to visit with puffins. How to visit with puffins. Travel by boat or plane to some northern windswept place. For seasickness, pack Dramamine. Dress warm, even though it is summer. Walk toward the cliff edge, looking for holes and scraped dirt among the thrift and daisies. Listen for the low beat of their talk, like a honk and a hum conjoined. Wonder, when you see them, that such an odd creature exists. Exult that they have not yet gone the way of the dodo, though there are warnings. Sit down and keep still. Watch them fly off and return with beaks full of fish. Realize that you, clumsy giant, are blocking the route to their burrows, their hungry pufflings. Politely move out of the way. Watch them charge down their holes and return. Adapt to their way of thinking. Scan the sky for the dark shapes of skuas who can reduce them to a pile of feathers. Understand they tolerate you because you scare off the skuas and so pose less risk. Rejoice in their remoteness, their tenderness, their tolerance. Consider the ways in which puffins do not understand risk. Siberian Landscape. This poem was written during a trip across Siberia last winter on the Trans-Siberian Express. It was inspired by the scale and beauty of the landscape, but also a realisation of the scale of the resources, the trees, the oil, the coal, being stripped from the country. Siberian Landscape. We are travelling through. We do not know the names of this place. The leafless trees are birch and cedar. No, not cedar. We know that would be evergreen. Here the palette is muted, dark grasses poking through snow. Angled across the scene, the trees are black and white trunks and a tracery of twigs and branches intricate as paper cuts. Sky blue paling to wash above the hills. If we'd a signal, we'd interpret things. The river is frozen, 
going where, how far, still beautiful. A luminous canvas for snowprints we can't recognise, though we're wishful, with phones and cameras, to capture something we'll take home with us. Long wagons, trundling west, with coal, oil, gas, containers pass often. We stop noticing. At night, we lie in our bunks, gazing at the stars. The last poem that you just heard was by a lovely poet called Louisa Hooper. Um, Louisa works for a, a charitable foundation that that um, funds conservation projects. I mean, major conservation projects, like marine biology projects in the Barrier Reef, and and you know, some quite mm. substantial um, initiatives. Um, so she's dealing with these really big ideas. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, but she's really kind of lovely and down to earth um, but you can hear and you can see these big ideas I think you can, I, I hope you could in that last poem we're really happy to have taken that poem um, and another of Louisa's poems uh, we've known Louisa for a very long time we've known her for about well for about 20 years Yeah. yeah. Um, because Louisa for, the, for, um, for about 12 years she was one of the co-editors of Brittle Star. And this is the first time we've published her, because as editors we never publish ourselves. Um, but she's not an editor anymore. Uh, so now we can publish it, and we're really pleased yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed it. One of the things I like about poetry is when you uh, come across different accents. Um, because different accents give you a different way of looking at things that are probably quite commonplace. Um, or, you know, that might seem quite ordinary, um, but the accent gives you a different way of uh, approaching it. It has a different sort of tone and uh, kind of emotional space. Um, this next poem is... I mean, the actual object isn't that ordinary. It's quite an unusual object, but um, but it's part of a sort of folkloric kind of ceremony which I think is in some ways quite ordinary you know, almost everyone has some sort of uh, some sort of traditions yeah. at their at their backs um, so this poem is by a poet called Simon Madrell and uh, the poem is called Kroshkern it's a Manx word um, so Manx is the Isle of Man if you are a Manx man or a Manx woman you come from the Isle of Man oh, right. did you not know that? no Oh, really? <laughs> cool. Um, and um, and they speak a particular kind of garlic or Gaelic or however you want to pronounce that. I'm never quite sure whether it's garlic or Gaelic or Gaelic. Depends where you are in it the is, world. It does depend. Well, it depends where you are in the language as well. Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, so Kroshkern means uh, Rowan Cross. Kroshkern, Manx Gaelic, Rowan Cross. Remnants of sheep's wool untwisted from brambles and barbed wire, twisted around two broken twigs of rowan, kern, the mountain ash, to make a cross that wards off evil spirits, a cross without nails for May Day Eve. Remnants of Manx folklore untwisted from the stories and memories twisted around two broken wings of a fairy. 
themselves a child stolen to make a cross to ward off a man's disease a cross without nails but there might be now hanging primroses from both doors green jackets flying on a dragonfly's back rose caps swishing with little people look dancing around that rowan in the garden him making jam whilst the berries lasted a jumper snagging wool that she knitted as you listen to this podcast you will hear that i say gonna quite a lot i'm gonna read this or i'm gonna give you this or i'm gonna share this or i'm gonna 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 so i'm not gonna say um gonna for this next poem, but I am going to say Gunny, because uh, this poem, The Stone Kiss by Peter Burroughs, is a poem that's been written um, in response to a photograph uh, by a photographer called Gunny Moberg. Um, and it's a photograph of a sheep pen, but it's in the shape of a cross. And the, the poem is also in the shape of a cross, like a, um, an X, actually, rather than a cross-cross. So this is The Stone Kiss. The Stone Kiss, after booked mainland Orkney, photographed by Gunny Moberg, 1979. Four ways harsh winds blow, north, east, west, south. Hail, gales, rain, sleet, snow. Stacked, packed, bound stones withstand north, east, west, south. Stalls, shelters, huddled, warmth revives. Sequoia, redwoods far from home, sweat rain. Safe in the arboretum, these big boys never bully me. Looking down, massive, to my mouse-like passing. My life is clipped twig, fallen leaf. Someone else will snap me up, dog's mouth, boot tread. Listen to me clicking on the wind's song. Wings breathing, so soon gone. The last poem that you heard there, and the last poem for this episode, uh, was Jill Townsend's Sequoia. Uh, Jill writes a lot about nature, I think, and um, it's always a pleasure to to include a poem about trees. <laughs> or not about trees. <laughs> We're going to end this part of the podcast with um, a short story uh, by a New York writer called Madison Feschler. The story is called Tomorrow. It's written in a second person narrative. So that's when you uh, speak to the you. So I would say, you know, you walked down the garden. Um, you didn't understand uh, what I'm talking about when I talk about second person narrative. <laughs> I'm confused. I know, not many people do it. Um, and when you, know, when, you, when you see it, it's quite interesting to see and to hear. So this is Tomorrow by Madison Feschler. Tomorrow. After patiently waiting for 15 minutes, you step onto the train the moment she opens her doors. Any seat has the potential to support your heavy body and the hand-me-down jean pocketbook from your grandmother, holding inside just two pieces of gum, your headphones, and your journal. The pencil in the pocket of your jean skirt stabs your upper thigh. You chew on your middle fingernail and carefully scan each seat, hoping no one will know that you are submitting yourself to your indecisiveness once again. 
the first time someone sees you this morning, maybe after you've carefully inspected each seat in the train car or before you scan each and every man who walks onto the train, but that is all they will know. They will not see you dig your nails into the crevice between your thumb and pointer finger, nor will they hear the increase in your breath as you approach the train station. They will not witness you walk up and down the aisle three times, four, five, nor will they smell the consequences of your distraught gastrointestinal tract. They will not see the tears well in in your eyes behind your sunglasses as you finally choose your seat. They will not know why your seat matters. You remember the time you stepped on train with ease and chose the seat next to the man in the red hat, the man in the red hat who complimented the way the evening sunlight hit your cheekbones and how your jean skirt hugged your hips just right. The man in the red hat who followed you off the train and pushed you into a nearby alley, leaving you with bruised knees and dried tears that stained your rosy cheeks and knotted the hair falling in your face. That seat has too many cracks. The one next to it has Cheetos sticking out of the crack right where your body is supposed to rest. You'd rather not be distracted by the thought of orange Cheeto dust on your ass. Your attention was needed elsewhere. You wish you had contemplated your seat choice more carefully on that day. You finally find an open window seat and take it before anyone else can, setting your bag on the seat beside you. You shut your eyes before hearing, Mind if I sit next to you, miss? Actually, I do. I'd rather sit by myself, you tell him, his own faded red hat piercing your memory. He walks away slowly, probably wondering why you rejected such a clean-cut and charming man who likely can count his number of rejections on one hand. But he doesn't know. He won't ever know. And the ease he feels as he settles into his seat is one you will never know. I know this is hard for you, you remember your last therapist telling you, but you can't be guarded forever. Maybe next time you just have to be more aware of your surroundings. You didn't like her very much. The chatter and laughter of everyone but you echoes in your ears and drowns out the thoughts that brought you here in the first place. You suction your body to the seat and look out the window, still alert to any man who may occupy the seat next to you. The animated voice comes through the speakers. This is the final stop. Please watch your step as you exit the train. It forgot to tell you to watch your back. You take a deep breath and look down at your aging converse, avoiding the possibility of eye contact with anyone else sharing the same destination as you. People begin to gather their bags and put them in their lap before it's time to exit the train. The music lovers continue to bop their heads, tap their feet, and some even bless you with their beautiful vocals. You remember when you used to love to sing, and the time the man in the red hat heard you singing out loud as you exited the train, later saying you had a beautiful voice sent from above as he slammed you up against a brick wall. You try to forget that day and everything everything that followed. Go ahead, miss, someone says to you, snapping you back. The beads of sweat breaking through the pores on your hands distract you, and you let the man go first. More people file out in front of you, fearless of who may be following them. The old man beside you looks in your eyes as you hesitate before exiting, and you give him a shy smile before tucking your head and returning to your seat. You take out your headphones from a pocket in your bag and stick one of the pieces of gum in your dry mouth. You begin to write. You put your bag up on the window seat. As you feel the time pass, sure that no one will question whether the seat next to you is open for occupancy. After a while, new people begin to enter to go back home. You think about yesterday and the days before, how you did the same thing, comforted by the fact that tomorrow you would see new faces and choose a new seat, only to to do it again the next day. Go at your own pace, your new therapist had said. You liked her very much. 
Before the train car fills with unfamiliar patrons, you hesitate before grabbing your bag and take a breath. You feel your legs steady and your chin lift higher as you stand up. You decide that the day has come for you to finally get off. So that's the first episode ended. That is the first episode ended. That was quite cool. How do you feel? (laughs) Tired. (laughs) I quite enjoyed that. Yeah. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you did, you can drop us a comment on uh, Stonewood Press's website. I think there's a page for Stereo Plate. Yep. Yep. You can also leave us a message through Anchor FM as well, um, a voicemail, I think. Can you? Yeah. That's cool. Because you're listening to this podcast, you're, you're already supporting us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for supporting us. There are ways you can support us even more. Or wherever you get your podcasts, you can... Raters and reviewers and things. Yeah. Okay, you could subscribe. Yes, subscribe. That's always a good way. And you can also spread the word. That's true. That's true. Tell people about us. And you can also uh, buy us a coffee if you fancy. So how could people buy us a coffee, Martin? You pop over to coffee.com forward slash stereoplate. Cool. And that is that coffee, C-O-F-F-E? No, it's K-O hyphen F-I dot com forward slash stereoplate and as an extra bonus for stereoplate listeners if you pop on over to www.brittlestar.org.uk you can subscribe to the brittle star magazine for a discounted price cool yeah it's 15 percent off wow which is pretty cool all you need to do is use the code stereostar when you get to the checkout and that's stereostar s-t-e-r E-O-S-T-A-R. And the offer ends at the end of August. 2020. So that's it for episode one, series one of Stereoplate. Great. Pretty cool. Come back next time for some um, great new fiction and new poetry. And in the meantime, stay safe wherever you are in the world. And we'll see you soon. Take care of yourself. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.